Today we're going to be discussing Franco Rosso's Babylon from 1980. The film is essentially a few days in the life of Blue, a Rastafarian DJ in South London in the late 1970s and is a snapshot of his daily struggles to survive. It's almost like a, a genre, isn't it? The sort of British working class... Slice of life movie. But, I mean, just adding into that the unrelenting racism that he faces like throughout every day, it's such an absolute grind. I mean... Yeah, it's it's not kind of a polemic film. There's only a couple of places where it kind of states what it's trying to say boldly. And the rest of it just feels like a really nice kind of relaxed slice of life movie. But, you know, with, with all the kind of, uh, I don't know, all the kind of like nicely nicely captured detail of, of time and place and location and everything. But it it just is the fact of the matter that, that for young black men in Brixton in the late 70s, it was just as you say, a relentless grind of, of racism and... and yeah, it's, that's it. As if, like, survival isn't hard enough, you know, when you're broke and, you know, you're young and, and you're sort of struggling, but just adding all the, all that extra kind of... The, the just, Shit. Yeah, and, not, and they're not even, like, you know, the sort of clan cliche of, you know, American politicians. It's, like, just people in their prejudice i grew up around people like that and it, it never really comes from anything other than just like ignorance yeah ignorance is the key word i was thinking about it i at that age i was up in the north of england in a town which had i think three black people in it and one of them was my grandfather so it was even weirder up north where there's no kind of daily experience of black people being there it's just ignorance taken to another level it's ignorance without experience which is even worse yeah sure uh, so this was your recommendation. You recommended it to me. And at the same time, I had two other people that <laughs> recommended it. As soon as it hit, I think, Netflix and Amazon, I just got a bunch of recommendations, even from one guy, Gabs, who I haven't spoken to in about six years, just sent me a message. He was like, dude, you got to check out this film. It's so good. <laughs> and I think it's going to blow up now. It's on. It's available for free. You know, it is like really good. It's a really good kind of snapshot of time and place, like you said before. Yes, yeah, a know, lovely I, I, time capsule. Sure. Yeah, I used to live in Brixton and, you know, it definitely, I think I was, I'm the midpoint between the you know, gentrified Brixton as it stands now, this film, and somewhere in between, I was there in 2000 to about 2009 or something, so yeah, I definitely... I don't know, it felt a little bit nostalgic as well. Yeah, I remember Brixton from that point because it was like gentrification was well underway, but there was still a rough edge that, that yeah, that's it. hadn't been completely crushed yet. Yeah, it hadn't reached Brixton market at that point. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, at the risk of repeating myself, it's the same old story as a lot of, of films that we've covered in this. It's something that I my ears kind of pricked up when it got um, a remaster and a re-release in about I think, 2008 or 2010, yeah, somewhere yeah. around back there. I remember seeing the posters and missed it. And then when it came out on Blu-ray, I was kind of quite intrigued. So I picked it up, started watching it, um, wasn't in the mood after about 15 minutes, put it on the shelf, and then it sat there and gathered dust. Uh, and it was only last year when I was going through all those movies that I kind of watched it on a, on a Friday night with a, with a couple of drinks and just fucking loved it from, from mm -hmm. start to finish. I think yeah, every, everything about it works really, really well. So, um, yeah, I was on to you about it then, and then it's kind of picked up momentum since then. But it's weird. Um, in, in doing a bit of, of research on this, you realise that it's it's already a cult movie and we've just missed it. We just, <laughs> we're just blind yeah, to it. Yeah. It's already well, got yeah. like a big following online, and, and it seems to have had a following in print over the years. And, and Yeah, and, the, you know, doing the research, like you say, there's like bootleg VHSs being passed around South London. So, you know great that it has a cult audience but also it's such a kind of strong important piece of cinema at the same time that it deserves you know it deserves to be in the kind of british pantheon of classic cinema you mm. know it's, it's that good i think i mean i don't want to make a documentary but should we should we go into, into the background of who made it and how it was made we should mention actually that a lot of our research has come from that website that you yeah, found fan website. It was uncarved.org, which is a music blog and has a massive archive for Babylon on it. And then the other one was the um uh, American Jewish news website called Forward, which was has a really in depth interview with Martin Stellman talking all about Babylon and Quadrophenia. Both of those are excellent resources. Yeah, so, I mean, I'd never heard of Franco Rosso before this, but doing research on him, it seems like after college, he worked for Ken Loach on Kez mm. and then shot 
a few films. One about the um, is it the Mangrove Nine? Yeah. Um, and apparently that was delayed. It was for the BBC, but it was delayed like a year or two because it's after the election. <laughs> yeah, and because it showed like police brutality and you know was quite honest and unflinching about its presentation of of the police in that movie. And then I think he sort of kicked around for a few years trying to get projects made and this came from he was working at the albany theater doing in deptford doing like youth workshops and so was martin stellman the writer youth theater for what what he says were regarded as hopeless kids um and then whilst they were working in there there were also some of the kids hired out the hall for sound system gigs oh yeah okay um, but at the same time, um, there's a church at the bottom of, of Rosso's garden that used to have them every Friday oh, yeah, till okay. late at night. So that was his first direct experience of it. Right, right. Yeah. And then Martin Stellman loved reggae and dub anyway, and used to go along and be like the only white guy at some of these sound system gigs. They kind of got away with it because, as he says, at the time he had this massive, glorious Jufro, as he calls it. <laughs> yeah. And they, they got kind of talking with the boys at those... Um, gigs and kind of put together a, pr- a proposal for a play for today yeah wasn't it that they wanted to do a kind of a black british version of mean streets something that was kind of authentic and from the streets and about youth culture and that sort of thing uh but that never happened and then eventually it was developed into film projects for the national film finance corporation oh yeah okay which is basically taxpayer money and then Chrysalis Records funded it to the tune of £30,000 as well because they were involved in licensing the soundtrack. Oh, right, right. Uh, so, yeah, so it has a budget of £372,000 as opposed to Breaking Glass, which had £2 million. Yeah, sure. A lot of that went on the crane shots. I think Stelman was introduced... When the, when the project was developed as a play for today, Stelman was introduced to Frank Rodham to potentially direct. Mm-hmm. And that didn't work out, but I think... Stellman went on to Quadrophenia from this as well. Yeah. So I think that there's kind of three interesting movies to look at is Quadrophenia, um, Breaking Glass, and this, you know, as like a snapshot of the tone of films that were being made, you know, like looking at youth culture. Quadrophenia mm. was one of those movies that my parents bought me a VHS of when I was like 14, or 15, <laughs> and they were like, this is what it was like for us. This is our, our youth. This is our youth. And, you know, I always kind of loved it, but, you know, I think it, it does kind of... It's not made in the moment, is it? It's kind of like a romanticized no, it's a, it's version a, of it. Yeah, that's it. It's a kind of, it's a little bit nostalgic, I yeah. think, whereas um, Babylon just feels like really authentic, like you've just been dropped into that moment and yeah it really kind of breathes as a as a sidebar do you ever feel like you're just tangled in a web of coincidence when i was researching this at the same time i watched that documentary about the mosh sigmund that's turned up on oh yeah okay netflix i think and they have a round table um in the middle of that with lots of top asc dops with phil mosh talking about his work and stuff oh, yeah, and okay. you know, you've got haskell wexler there and caleb deschanel mm-hmm. and there's also um stephen goldblatt who was yeah, the yeah. DOP on um, Breaking Glass? All oh, right. Yeah, and then when I was researching this, I find that he was also he was one of the four cameramen on the Mangrove Nine movie that Franco Rosso made. Oh, really? You okay. think it's all ah, it's all happening it's all, at once? It's all connected. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, sorry. And in the spirit of that, one of the producers on this movie is Gavrik Losi. Oh yeah, that's it. Again, I looked him up and thought that name seems familiar, and he's the producer of uh, Little Malcolm. Yeah, that's right. Um, and he was also production manager on three other movies that I watched last year. <laughs> so you just feel like you're in the centre of it all. He, um, production manager it's... on Melody, That'll Be The Day, and Stardust. Um, They're all connected. And it's photographed by the legendary Chris Mengis. Yeah, I mean, he brings something special to this, doesn't he? And there's there's so many points, because I've watched a fair few low-budget movies from the early 80s recently. Mm, sure. And there's so much to be said for having an actual professional director of photography with it with with an eye with an eye and the technical ability to get the shot yeah and just to kind of get the exposure right on the kind of the black faces and uh, you know a fair bit of it is kind of point and shoot you know the limitations of the spaces that they're shooting you know are quite obvious but whenever there's a, a chance to find some beauty mm. it's there you know and the like the cutaways are, are, there's one quite early on which is just a um, focus pull across uh, a vinyl record on a turntable and it goes from the needle into the reflection of a neon lion sign up on the wall and it's just like this precise beautiful cutaway that i don't know just elevates it for sure 
I mean, just just on a basic technical level, I've, I mean, it has a fair amount of night shooting, doesn't it? But I've seen a few movies lately, which, you know, okay, so maybe they're shot on 16mm, which is a different matter, but they're just barely getting the exposure in the yeah, shot. Yeah. It's just like a, a sea of, of grain, of black and grain. And yeah, you think, yeah, sure. oh, come on. So you, you've got that plus of, you know, this is a fairly low-budget movie of, of somebody who's shooting it proficiently, but yeah, with, with an eye for for interesting detail and great composition and, and lovely, lovely use of lighting and colour. I mean, yeah, available sure. light, I'd say, for a lot of it. But Yeah, well, I mean, one of my favourite sequences is uh, Blue has been chased by the police, battered and chucked in the back of a police car, and he's kind of, he's coughing his guts up, blood coming out of his nose and mouth, but you have this kind of really gorgeous sunrise happening through the window. It's like the, the counterpoint, isn't it, of a new day dawning, but you don't know the struggle that's happening for some people. It just kind of d- does so much storytelling and is like beautiful to look at and tragic at the same time. You know, it's just, as you're watching, you're just like, okay, yeah, a master at work. I'm I'm going to take a step back from from that poetry, which I totally agree with. But I just think as well that whole sequence with Blue walking at night or early in the morning, mm. and then being chased and stuff. Again, this is something you see with low budget movies. You just kind of kind of shoot what you can get and let let the audience fill in the rest. So you know, I can imagine on another movie you might just be shooting what you can get at the time. But with that, there's it's carefully shot and carefully lit and carefully exposed, so you get like the progress from from night to day. Yeah, throughout yeah. and it's that sunrise that's kind of like the climax of that whole sequence but everything mm. is timed and lit just right yeah, yeah to show sure. the passing of time which... yeah yeah there's no kind of breaks of continuity or no ha- handheld flashes <laughs> to bridge shots that don't work it, it's all yeah very carefully done like you say one of the things i liked about it is that it does have a structure sort of a three-act structure but again because it's such a slice of life movie it feels really kind of deceptive and easygoing there's no exposition at all anywhere you yeah, just, yeah you're just left to pick it up from from you know incident and character detail and and most of what i enjoyed about it was that it's just a, a pleasure spending time with these people and watching them do what they do so you're just enjoying that so much you don't really sort of notice the the plot progression yeah yeah and i would imagine at the time i don't think many people outside of london had much experience of rastafarians and that culture you know the bob marley record i think you know most people had that you know my parents had that but i think you know the point was just to show that the rastafarians were normal people and it wasn't anything to be afraid of i think there's there's kind of there's something about that sort of trying to create empathy it didn't feel for me like it was focusing on on rastafarian culture or even that you know rastafarian culture was like a a focus of their life it was just it was just the music that kids were into it's like you could if you'd made a movie at the time well say breaking glass or something it would be about punk and new wave because that's what kids were into yeah true and if you're a black kid this is you know the music that black kids were into at the time it's it's kind of the focus of their fun and leisure and stuff but it's not I wouldn't have said that like the whole Rastafarian culture is a is a big feature in this. No, but like it felt like they were just trying to show this culture that's part of Britain in a way that it's non-threatening for people that are afraid of things that they don't know about. Well, it's the best way to do it then is just make it a slice of life movie about about likable characters who happen to be black. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And they're, they're super like nice, energetic, youthful characters. And I, th- I think by the time we get our first kind of hint of the racism that they face day to day, we're kind of, we're definitely on their side. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, we spent half an hour at least hanging around yeah, yeah. before that, that sort of thing starts to happen. So I've got to kind of, I did kind of break it down into, into rough acts that you sort of get into trouble towards the end, determining where act three starts. But so the first one is obviously like meeting people and seeing places. I'm going to, I'm going to get a little bit airy fairy now. Okay. Do it. The first half of this movie has got some amazing, not just time capsule images of South London, but images of a lost time. There's between this and a scene in another movie that I watched, it made me realise um, there's times and places that are gone. And I don't just mean that in the nostalgic sense. I mean, specific combinations of light and sound and smell, which will never be there again. Like the, the where they there's a bit later on where they break into a school to nick a speaker for their, for their yeah, sound yeah. system. And you can see the school and you can almost kind of smell the dirt and the brasso and that sort of thing. And, yeah, sure. And you realise that, that, you know, schools aren't really like that anymore. That that era has gone. 
Yeah, yeah, the linoleum floor and Victorian brickwork and layers of paint and, yeah, the kind of... Are those bloody uh, pineapple cubes in the urinals? You know, all of that stuff is gone, isn't it? Right? Yeah. It's all... And uh, there was another movie, which is a recent movie, but it's set in the 50s and the production design was pretty good. And it, there was a scene in an office with, you know, three big desks and typewriters... And then it came back to me, you know, again, the, the smell of an office where there's lots of ink and paper. Yeah, sure. And possibly people smoking and dust in the carpets because you don't get mm. carpets in offices anymore. That kind of atmosphere and environment doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, yeah. And I went to the library the other week and I, I, I realized that, you know, within my lifetime, we probably won't have libraries, which are big rooms full of paper, which will smell of paper and dust mm-hmm. and age. That that won't be there anymore. So getting back to the real world... Um, there's moments in this, um, scenes of South London and obviously, you know, places of nostalgic and architectural interest. You know, you can go to to the real locations websites and, and see what's not there anymore. But there's lots of stuff in this, in particularly the way that it's it's shot and lit. I love kind of London in winter with this, that slight mist, blue mist in the air and that winter light and the colours look subdued but vivid at the same time. Mm-hmm. And they're just kind of captured on that specific film stock as well from 1979 and it's just it's just little snapshots of things which feelings and atmospheres which aren't there anymore yeah you can smell the kind of the traffic aren't you yeah those kind of uh, god i can't even remember what the petrol was called is it four star or something yeah, petrol that, familiar. it's the pollution basically that, yeah. that you're nostalgic for <laughs> is uh... again this this film gets a gold star for me because it's set in 1979 and if i could live in a time loop forever it would be within london in 1976 to 79 say i could just go i could just explore that over and over and over and over and over and that's Mm -hmm. partly nostalgia because i spent six months living in london when i was seven in 1978 oh yeah it's super exciting but um but yeah i could i could just live in that forever so this this movie is like a a, a little glimpse of that yeah yeah. another one i always reference is performance obviously was uh before my time but what I love is the wide shots of the city before they cleaned it up you know yeah. so it, every building is black it's <laughs> it's black from uh, soot and you know exhaust fumes and smoke and all of that stuff mm. and my granddad was from Ealing but after the war moved out to Essex but we'd always kind of come in and out of uh, of London so yeah that's that's how I remember it as well so my next note is specifically at the Sound Clash, uh, the first Sound Clash where I tell Lie in a Plane. Yep. You get a really nice sense of, of the intimacy of it. Something I was really surprised was that the artists are actually on the floor in the crowd. Yeah, it's really cool, isn't it? Yeah. And then um, after the show, which you don't usually see, you know, with the, the lights up bright and the room looking pretty dingy and just hanging around with girlfriends and. Yeah, yeah. Borrowing money, borrowing, borrowing money, scoring wheat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then like dropping the gear as they're going down the stairs. You know, it's one of those kind of to me, to you sort of uh, <laughs> silly. It, you know, just uh, this whole film is filled with those kind of little human moments where you're just like, oh my god, that reminds me of you know. And mm. it's it's very good at kind of humanizing all the characters. And so here, I guess we we meet the characters. Um, Blue, who is is he? He's the MC, isn't he for the? Sound system. Yeah, they get the backing track, which they call the dub, um, and then he does the toasting over the top. Yes, it's Brinsley Ford, lead singer of Aswad. Yeah, I mean he's so good in this film. As soon as as soon as I watched it, I was like, right on the IMDb, just trying to see what he'd done after this, and that, that's pretty much it, right? He does a few kind of little TV roles, but no kind of lead roles after this, and he's so good and so kind of natural on screen and you know his his energy is fantastic and i i just expected him to have a massive film career after this maybe he went to the states or something but no yeah but he did have a he did have a massive music career taking yeah sure sure you know number one internationally and you know Mm. album after album but i think i don't know about you but growing up the aswad songs i remember don't turn around with the hits yeah exactly and i never really thought much of it but when you hear this the more defiant Aswad sound it's yeah. it's really exciting uh so we meet blue and uh, meet everyone else there um it's beefy there he is yeah he must yeah beefy's my favorite character he's cool isn't he it's I my think favorite performance he sort of almost feels like the comedy sidekick but he's so kind of raw with his emotions and kind of reacting to the racism he's so like 
what is not going to take it it's not taking that that's shit. that's the thing the really nice thing about it and the way it's written is that he's he's constantly having his dignity injured not just by racists but by everyone he comes across his mates take the piss out of him the rival sound system blokes are always needling him and taking the piss yeah, yeah. he gets it from every side and the really nice thing about his performance is that okay so he's got his injured dignity and he's trying to keep his cool and everything he's constantly being embarrassed and annoyed but that really, really feeds into his kind of simmering anger. So it doesn't feel like when he's when he's reacting violently to to kind of racial taunts, he's not just going. Well, I wouldn't say he'd be going over the top, but it's not just that that's causing it. It's the fact oh, everyone's yeah. fucking been, on his case all day, yeah, every day. Exactly. Yeah, he just snaps, doesn't he? Yeah. Twice. There's the brilliant one where he goes after the racists and they have to uh, pin really, him down. Really, really pin him down. <laughs> yeah, to, to stop him like throwing somebody off a balcony. And then at the end when. Uh, yeah, Shaka's giving him shit as well. <laughs> he just brings out that massive machete in the sound clash and everyone's like, whoa, beefy, beefy. And you just think, fucking hell, man, if they didn't hold him back, you know, he would chop that guy up. Yeah. Yeah, you, you know where it comes from, don't you? That's the thing. It isn't, isn't just uh, a, a spike for us to kind of watch as the audience. We totally empathise with his frustration. There's lots of nice little pop culture touches at the time, stuff that young people will be wearing. Like Beefy's wearing a Rocky T-shirt when he's working out. Yeah, yeah. Scientist has got his Nostromo cap on from Alien, I know, yeah, which would just be brand new at that point. Yeah, exactly, because the film probably came out while they were shooting, right? Yeah, I, I actually, when I was watching this for the first time, I was trying to, because I knew it came out in 80, but I was trying to work out when it was shot, and then there's a bit where Blue's waiting in the tube station, so you can, you can see a poster for the black hole. Oh, the right, tube okay. wall. It's like, right, so this is late 79. So Alien, mm-hmm. I think, came out in December 79 in the UK. And then we've got uh, Ronnie, who's Carl uh, Howman, who's a very, very familiar face, but it took me... I know I'd seen him in um, That'll Be The Day in Stardust last year, but I was trying to place why he was so famous. I think he's in a load of ads, but then there was... Is he in Brushstrokes as well? He was in Brushstrokes, which yeah. I've which... never seen, but I know Oh, of. no, I used to love that. It had, like, a Dexys Midnight Runners soundtrack, and it was just about him being Jack the Lad, picking up all the girls. Yeah, I used to love Brushstrokes. Well, thing, knowing, knowing that he's in Brushstrokes and knowing that his most famous, like, role is in a sitcom, you'd expect it to be a fairly broad performance, but it's really nice and really subtle and relaxed, isn't it? Yeah, I did uh, read that during the rehearsals he was kind of quite dismissive of the prejudice that the black characters face day to day he was like no this had never happened this is not real <laughs> this is too far-fetched and i think they took him out and just kind of showed him the truth and afterwards he was like yeah all right i got it got it that's yeah i understand now yeah i mean i just i don't want to focus on him too much but it's it's a really lovely he's a really kind of likable guy and you can see you know why they tolerate him because he's just kind of quite, quite yeah nice and that's affable it and and I like the fact that he's not trying hard to be black, in quotes. He's just enjoying himself. Like I like the fact that he can't smoke weed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's a bit, I think, about halfway through where, you know, Blue Officer Majority he says, I, I don't want it, I can't take it. Yeah. <laughs> Which, as somebody who can't it. smoke weed, I, I find that quite appealing. <laughs> and they're working at a garage where Mel Smith is the uh, proprietor, which caught me by surprise, yeah. seeing long-haired Mel Smith. Just on the cusp of superstardom, Mel Smith. You just would have wondered, because I looked at his IMDb and he did, um, well, he was in Bloody Kids as well the same year, that that very strange, bleak Stephen Frears film. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if he hadn't become a comedy superstar, if he would have continued doing slightly edgier material. The other character I really love, who, again, is peripheral, but, you know, is is kind of holding the whole thing together, is Dreadhead. Archie Poole. Yeah, he has so many great scenes where he's just like, come on man you know that scene where they go and see fat larry to buy a, a dub to use at the next sound clash well now sir is a serious business we're dealing with now you see this tune exclusive to me you understand and this ganja here exclusive to i import you know straight from jam down sure what happened song man this now back a yard you know it's a serious business me i tell you no man it's where you think you are, Trenchtown. This is Brixton, and it's 50 pound I want for each of them tune. 50 pound each. 
I suppose it makes perfect sense, but I had no idea that it worked that way, that you'd have to go and get, get ripped off to buy the latest tunes. Yeah, that's it. It's like £50 for a tune, and he's like he doesn't have it, does he? So he gives him like a bag of weed and some cash, and he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll take your necklace too. <laughs> Just kind of really f- fleeces him, doesn't he, for this tune. But, that, you know, that is that tune that they carry all the way through the film waiting to kind of bust out at the end. And you've got Beefy getting needled by the rival Jashaka mob. Again, there's a, there's um, a couple of bits in this where there's really nice kind of music edits or use of use of music on cuts. We were just talking before about the scene with Mel Smith in the garage, and there's a bit where, um, at the very end of the scene, where Blue's uh, lighting his blowtorch, and you get like a musical motif on that, and you cut as it comes up. And there's another bit as well where Beefy's just been... Um, had the piss taken out of him by a rival mob, so he goes over to smash the oh, headlights. Oh, yeah, he takes the hammer, yeah. Yeah, and there's a really nice kind of like, I think it was called a, a syndrum, like a synthesised drum sound they used to use in dub tracks. Yeah, Just yeah. used on both of those breaks. <laughs> like that. The next sequence I really like is when Dreadhead brings the the track that they've got from Fat Larry back to the lockup, and they put it on on the sound system. Oh, yeah. And they just like start dancing and jumping around and everybody's kind of in you just get this i don't know this it's just like about being young yeah the film comes to life at the same time because it's fairly static and then as soon as they put the tune on they start dancing the camera starts moving around them yeah yeah and it really comes to life with them it's just so much fun isn't it you know you just remember like being young and playing music too loud and Mm -hmm. dancing and yeah just absolutely love it and I think Beefy's nicked a video camera, isn't he? It's not even <laughs> plugged in. And, uh, you know, they're just, like, messing around. And it's Beefy and I think Errol arguing about it. Like, the whole argument's kind of done in a single take. Oh, they're silhouetted in the foreground, aren't they? Yeah, it's really, really nice sort of close-up, almost silhouette in the foreground with everything mm. going on in the background. It's just lovely composition. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But it's just one of those things, again, you know, where you've got, like, an imaginative director and a, and a, a great DOP shoot something imaginatively rather than just shooting shot reverse shot and bolting it together yeah no coverage is there it's just yeah elegant composition and i guess this is the point where we meet um the racist neighbors who live near the lockup look at you good for nothing noisy stinking filth lazy you're everywhere jungle bunnies this was a lovely area before you come here lovely actress called maggie steed who i recognized and it took me ages of scrolling, because she's done tons and tons of stuff, and she's still yeah. working to this day. But it took me ages to find where I knew her from, and she was in uh, Shine on Harvey Moon, which I remember from oh, the, yeah. the early 80s. Yeah, right. She's Harvey Moon's wife. But she's a loathsome character, but it's a really nicely judged performance, or nicely written, because she's spewing bile, and you have no sympathy for her, but you can tell that she has a pretty pathetic life. Yeah, she's yeah. got a and pretty rough life generally, and you feel sorry for her generally as a person. But at the same time, she's just unforgivable because yeah, of this she's shit. kind of angry and scared at the same time. Yeah. It's, it, it is kind of I don't want to say sympathetic, but yeah, like you say, you do understand who she is from that. And she does that thing as well that that um, Trevor Laird manages that that if you can, do, it's really difficult to do. But if you can express constantly injured dignity that you're yeah, trying yeah. to fight for throughout your life. She thinks that she's standing up for herself and dignifying mm. herself by what she's saying. Uh, and yeah, she's not. It. She just seems, you know, genuinely pathetic and in a way sort of not sympathetic, but, but pitiable as a result. Pitiable, yeah, that's good. It's, it's a great performance. Yeah, and there's a nice exchange between those two where she says, go back to your own country. And he's like, I was fucking born here. <laughs> and it's always been a tip. <laughs> so I've got sort of act two kicking in here. I, I round off act one with that burst of racism, which kind of sours things a bit. Yeah, that's it. We, we kind of know the landscape at this point, don't we? Act two. So uh, playing pool and Beefy's dog. Again, I, I don't want to kind of labour the point. This is one of those scenes where Beefy's just having the piss ripped out of him for no discernible reason. I don't understand why that dog's funny. <laughs> it's like, a it's, massive dog with a tiny head. It's a huge it's a dog funny... with a tiny head and it's, it's dribbling a bit. But it's a dog, mm. you know. It's, yeah, it's, no, but it's his kind of it's his rocky look as well, isn't it? You know, he's mm. got the grey tracksuit, he's got the buckkiss dog that he's dragging around. You know, you can see that what he wants to do is get respect from everybody around him, and even like some white kind of shyster turns up, doesn't he? And is giving him shit at the same time. <laughs> They're just like, oh dear, poor beefy. 
I did like uh, there's a scene just before this with um, where Blue's mum calls him at Elaine's and asks him to come home and help get his brother to go to school. Um, but then the dad comes in and like just <laughs> batters this kid with a rolled up newspaper, and you're like, oh yeah, that's seventies parenting. But there's a really nice exchange between Blue and his dad where his dad's realised that Blue's quit his job and he's like... You just throw away a good, good job there and you don't even care. See, they don't care. Rest that, man. Listen, you do your thing and just love me for do mine. Your thing. Fucking call it weed and song system, your thing. Yeah, I'm on the herbs, man, and you's a white rum and betting shop, man. Swam to that, everything a cold? No, sir. It's two men inside, yeah, and one at work and one at work, you hear me? If you look at it on paper, it's just kind of like the, the stock nagging father thing with that yeah, generational sure. gap. But it's the fact that it's kind of delivered in, in West Indian patois that gives yeah, it that yeah. extra sort of wit and that, that edge to it as well. It's mm. really, really good. Mm. And I do like, I'm jumping ahead a bit, but when things get quite dark later on, when um, Blue has to leave home, his mum's told his dad that she spent somehow 200 quid to bail him out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's the argument going on between his mum and dad in the kitchen. It's really, really nicely judged in that Blue gets out of the building just as that argument feels like it's about to escalate. Yeah, to and escalate, You, yeah, you yeah. wonder if there is a little bit of violence lurking in the background as well, but it's not made explicit at all. Do you want to talk about um, Rastaman? Oh, the uh, the walking flag of Ethiopia, they call him. <laughs> the guy walking down the street. Yeah, he's cool, man, isn't he? If it wasn't such a horrible look for white people to kind of grow dreads and... And let's let's make no mistake, it is a horrible look for white people to grow dreads. Yeah, it's yeah. really horrible, isn't it? Yeah. The guys are sort of taking the piss out of him as well. He just seems like a pleasant, harmless eccentric, like it, almost a, a slight mm. figure of fun as well. Yeah, but it, it's nicely seeded for later on when... Blue is kind of, he's lost all kind of support and a sense of security and then he stumbles into the Rastafarian church and suddenly, you know, there's this kind of connection to his roots, you know, and suddenly the whole idea of Babylon makes more sense. The next major section is my favourite section of the film. It's a lover's engagement party. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love it that he hasn't even told his mum he's getting engaged. I know. Engaged. You, you open with him kind of hiding hiding in the bathroom, terrified to even go along to this thing. He hasn't invited any of his family along. He's just got his mates along. And nobody knows that he's engaged to yeah, get married. Yeah. And he, he doesn't tell them when they're on the bus where they're supposed <laughs> to get off. So they've gone like 10 stops past, haven't they? There's another of those moments... Um, flash of recognition that you'll never see that again in your life the kind of smoky steamy top deck of a bus and i guess this is a personal thing as an older man again i'll never see that in my life i'll never again be on the top deck of a bus going somewhere with my mates being excited yeah yeah it's never gonna it's never gonna happen to me again so it's doubly <laughs> poignant but yeah they they go along to this engagement party that his family don't know about and it's in a fairly depressing brightly lit church hall but it has my favourite shot in the whole film, which is just a shot of um, Sandra and her parents waiting for <laughs> lover to turn up. And just the look on all of their faces yeah. is it's so good. I, I could hang on that, that image for ages. It was so... Yeah, just really set the, <laughs> set the scene, the tension is brilliant. There's so much told so subtly in this entire scene. It's got this kind of semi-documentary feel. I mean, I, I'm just going to go through some moments and, and if you flag up any others. Yeah. Like, I love Lover and his fiancés. Like, they look excruciatingly embarrassed and uncomfortable mm -hmm. with the situation they've suddenly found themselves in. They're barely even speaking to each other. So, I, yeah. I get the feeling they don't really know each other that well. Mm. But then it pays off later because you get to see a moment of them together and they're kind of like, although they're shy, they're kind of smiling at each other. You can tell they really do like each other and you think yeah, you know, yeah, this, very much they're so. probably going to get on all right, these two. I loved like when the dad's talking about the, the date that's been set for the wedding and Lover obviously has no idea. And you see him just like <laughs> look over at Sandra with just like, oh my God, what's happening? You know, this is like, it's just out of their control now. The old people are involved and they're pushing it forwards. I'd love to know, A, who played Sandra's dad and if he was a professional actor. And I want, I'd like to know how that, how that dad's speech was shot and how many takes, because it feels like a non-actor... A non doing it in one take with all of those perfect inflections and misphrasings of things and faltering wording and all of that. And then the fact that the mum kind of coughs 
at the beginning of the speech over over him talking. <laughs> it's all those kind of like perfect moments that you get with a non-actor that you you'd have to spend eighteen takes to get from an actor. And he ends, doesn't he, by saying, uh, "We've got plenty of Carlsberg, plenty of mutton, and plenty <laughs> of rice." <laughs> I was just like, "I want to be at that party." I want to be there. <laughs> like the scene really warms up, like the music kicks in, and everyone's having food and drink, and it's you know everyone starts to relax a little bit, mm-hmm. and you can see Lover and Sandra, you know, a bit relaxed with each other. There's a nice flash of Ronnie dancing with Sandra's mum. Yes, and I really like Blue and Elaine. Clearly, there's some yeah, yeah. tension between them, but that whole thing of the tension between them and it being kind of eased and, and sorted out is all played without dialogue. It's just yeah, yeah. purely body language on the dance floor. It's a really nice kind of Scorsese moment as well where mm. the camera's on a, a nice track moving in towards them. You're just like, okay, there's there's your tracking shot. Really nice. Mm. <laughs> I forgot during the dad's speech where he said, you know, we've only known lover as lover or lover man or lover boy. And he, he says, you know, oh, I'm so happy that my daughter is, you know, has met, is engaged to Norville Washington and just kind of drops his, <laughs> his name in and everybody's in hysterics. Such a great kind of movie name, isn't it? Norville Washington. So, yeah, so I guess it's, it's clever structuring and writing that you have such a, a, a warm kind of like friendly relaxing scene and then when you get back to the lockup you got the racists barracking them from their balcony yeah and it's just that lovely moment with like all the guys stood around the van like laughing you know there isn't even any proper dialogue they're just kind of laughing and sort of giggling and you know it's just really kind of joyous and about the camaraderie of this these lovely guys and then boom this kind of bottle is flung at them from the balconies above and mm-hmm. we're reintroduced to our, our racist family Again, I've got to know about Beefy's kind of suppressed anger boiling over. Uh, he's constantly disappointed and disillusioned with the way that people treat him. Um, so this is the this is Blue's first soul searching walk, I guess. Um, yeah. Again, I've got I've got the note here. The thing that I mentioned before, the lovely sort of time carefully timed continuity of shots. You know, the early morning going from dark to just pre dawn. That lovely kind of lambent blue light you get before the sun comes up. Um, and apparently, uh, this, they had the same uh, advisor on police tactics um, and brutality on this as was on Tony Garnett's Law and Order, which isn't um, legally available anymore, but you can get it off YouTube, which I've still oh, okay. is, um, a groundbreaking four-part exploration of, of basically corruption at every level of Law and Order, maybe yeah, about sure, 1978. Sure. Uh, in one of the interviews I read, they were saying that when he was advising on the scene where Blue is chased by the police, that they used to kind of anticipate that moment. It was like, uh, you know, just this kind of delicious anticipation, waiting to see if the black youths that they were trailing would run or stop. And when they ran, it was like this adrenaline burst. And it, yeah, it's like, uh, I don't know, like the hounds going after the fox. I did have a note from um, the when they were shooting the sequence of Blue being chased by the police, that they had to reshoot it when a pony bolted across the uh, across the road, and apparently all the rag and bone men had been moved out of their houses and into tower blocks, and they used to leave their their old nags outside the tower blocks to graze on the grass overnight overnight while they're filming this night shoot. So he, he gets arrested. His mum bails him out, and then he he ditches home, and I think he's going to go to Elaine's. But she's not there, so he ends up just kind of walking the streets and for like yeah. a day and a half in the end. Strange, uh, well, I mean, it's amazing eye candy for me where Blue goes up west with William and Rupert. Yeah, yeah. Meets up with some guys and just goes up west in the car because he's got nothing else to do. But um, yeah, Soho in 1979, shot by Chris Mengis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. That's all you need to say, really. Yeah, it's yeah. Amazing. It looks like... Um, is it Las Vegas, the name of that yeah, penny arcade? Yeah, on Wardour Street, near Hammer House. Apparently they shot it through a prostitute's letterbox and they paid her off for an hour while they filmed the uh, the wide shot. All right, okay. It's an odd little section, isn't it? I was completely taken in by the setup. I thought we were going to get like to see a little snatch of gay life. But it's, um, it's, it's an odd thing and it's the only sort of... I know, I know it's not a polemic that the film agrees with, but it's the only time where you get kind of like somebody stating a manifesto to yeah. camera. Which has some some bearing but on I the situation. I didn't mind it to be honest. Like, yeah, you're talking about is it Wesley when he just starts talking about, you know, this is uh, survival. This is what it looks like. It's quite a 
cold-blooded speech yeah, it's, it's about how the establishment like a, works. A doggy-dog yeah. world, you know, If you it? want to yeah. get ahead, you have to be scum like the establishment is basically what he's saying. Is that what you're on about? Look, how do you think all these politicians, all these police, these blokes driving around in fast cars, how do you think they get so high? They got to step on someone's feet. Survival. Money's money, in it, mate? But to, you know, to Blue's credit, he's kind of, you know, that, that, that's not his choice. He's, is not, he? he's yeah, not on board yeah. at all, is he? Yeah. Then he heads home um, and he and Elaine have an argument. I really like, A, the kind of relationship between Blue and Elaine. It's it's very modern and Elaine is, yeah, Beverly Michaels, really, really nicely yeah, understated yeah. performance. She's kind of, she's not strident and she's not pushy. And she's not standing up for her rights, but she just quietly yeah, she's doesn't just take like, don't take the piss. And yeah. states her case. I've been yeah. good to you. Why are you taking the piss? It's that kind of thing, isn't it? And and also, you know, she kind of pulls him up and pulls him up for us as well. Is that why? Why are you being so Mm-mm. regressive about this? Why are you being so territorial? Mm. I'm not your territory. Yeah, um, I think that, that scene. Yeah. I think. You know, you're with Blue as well, and he's like had this knackering, exhausting kind of experience, and then he's almost like made it to bed, and he's so horrible to her. She's just like, "Go away, leave me alone," and he's like, "Oh, fuck. yeah, where am I going to go now?" Like he's run out of options. But it's really nice the way they don't. You know, Blue isn't presented as an ideal, idealized kind of figure here because he's a victim throughout, but he's not. You know, he's yeah, not sure. a saint in himself. Well, he's real, isn't he? You know, he's um, he's authentic. Yeah. This is Blue's proper long dark night of the soul. Um, there's a really nice dolly yeah, shot yeah, across the bridge cool. after he's um, left Elaine. And then he finds his way to the Rastafari temple, um, which has a really nice sort of, I, I suppose, if, it, if you've been up all day and all night for two nights, it would, you know, it would have a semi-hallucinatory quality to it. But um, there's a really nice breakdown of kind of Rastafari beliefs as they relate to Blue's situation. Please, Africa. To the west, Jamaica, first Babylon. To the north, England, second Babylon. Babylonian triangle of captivity. Man traveled down many roads, in many directions. All of them roads that man take, all of them journeys that man make, is but deceptions and vanities. Vanities and vanities! That make man can't step forward out of Babylon. First leaving behind him the dirty filthiness of this dirty, corrupted and wicked Babylonian society. I had to check Babylon in the dictionary just to make sure I understood this new definition. And, it, you know, yeah, in, in Rastafarian, uh, the Rastafarian definition of Babylon is a contemptuous or dismissive term for aspects of white culture seen as degenerate or oppressive, especially the police. Uh, so immediately after the scene with the Rastafari temple, uh, Blue gets back to the lockup and finds that the sound system has been smashed up and the place has been trashed with racist graffiti yeah, all yeah. over the place and it's clear clear who's done it just for a flash i was wondering whether it was shaka uh, but then when you start reading the racist graffiti you're like okay no that wasn't yeah, shaka and it's the absolute low point of the film it's, it's oh, you're gutted completely... for them though aren't you just like it, it just yeah like, yeah it makes you feel sick when you're looking around you're like oh, who the fuck did that well like why would you do that it's so petty and spiteful I think we should talk as white viewers about Ronnie's role in this. I think it's incredibly well written and I guess it's a timelessly well judged depiction of how unimportant I guess a white person's reaction to this is. Yeah, sure. Bearing in mind this is like written and directed by by two white guys. There would be the, there would be the temptation to kind of play to Ronnie as being kind of like, you know, the the kind of token liberal white guy. And he is, you know, he does and says exactly the right things, but the guys are so angry with him, they just they just don't have any time for it. And to be honest, it's basically yes, yes, he's disappointed and yes he'd be upset. But his reaction to this it's is irrelevant, really. It's irrelevant. Yeah. He doesn't have their experience. And you see that in the garage where he's working with Blue, the fact that Ronnie turns up stoned, can't do his work, goes home stitches blue up and gets away with it you know he hasn't lost his job but blue even just pushing back you know just trying to take a lunch break 
you know, ends up in a confrontation with the garage owner and loses his job because he won't compromise, you know, and be insulted. And all the way through, we see that Ronnie, he's sharing their experience, but he doesn't have that kind of depth of understanding, that sort of unrelenting oppression that these guys have to deal with every day. And so, yeah, like you say, his his reaction at the end, it's, it's irrelevant. And I think it's, I think it's very interesting and you know absolutely commendable that that a movie made by two white guys doesn't doesn't follow up on his his reaction yeah. it's just yeah, it's yeah. not relevant it's not what the movie's about yeah i mean you say kind of two white guys this reading up on rosso and stellman you know stellman says that ronnie's character is a kind of stand in for him and his own experiences being a kind of um, I think he calls himself a passenger or a tourist in this world. So he knows that that's and was always pushing for authenticity from the cast to kind of bring that out in, in the film. But he was like or is a, a British Jew who grew up and I think he's, both his parents were deaf. So he grew up speaking sign language and was already kind of outside of, uh, let's call it mainstream white British culture. And the same with Rosso, who was whose parents fled Italy during the Second World War, brought up as the kind of the eye tie of the class, you know, had an accent and stuff. So I think they're they're both kind of outsiders from mainstream society of the times. That sequence in the um the lockup it ends with Ronnie on the floor with a broken nose after Beefy's head bite him, and then the guys all leave except for Blue to go and find a new sound system for them to perform with in the evening and the last kind of shot or the shot that stands out for me is this moment where blue is just stood in the corner against a black wall with all this white racist graffiti around him it says like black bastard there's a swastika and nf written you know it's just like you just feel this kind of horrible oppressive reality that he's he's, he's living in man it's it's really grim i guess we do we do now get to what is you know the the key reaction to racism in the film blue storms up to the balcony and hammers on the the racist door and seems like he's getting no response but then as he's walking away the big loudmouth dad comes out and starts insulting him and then at this point how do you feel do you think it's too melodramatic or do you think it feels right in the moment or yeah i mean i i, I feel bad watching it because there's always the worry watching something that you know you're watching a dramatic construct and you're thinking okay are they doing this because it, they feel they have to give you this kind of dramatic confrontation to finish the movie or does it feel I think, right i think it feels I, right i, I think, think if it feels you're in a little blue's bit... head if you under if you've experienced everything that he's experienced just in like this 48 hour period that we spend with him in the movie if you imagine like that's his entire life up to this point you know at some point you're just going to snap and strike back aren't you and i think that's what it kind of it smacks of for me it's just that retaliation it doesn't matter who it is you just got to fight back you know you just you just need to hit something make somebody suffer for for that it's tough viewing though because you know that the rest of blue's life is over at this point he's he's going to get caught he dropped the screwdriver with his prints on a few steps away no matter what happens and you know fairly exuberant next 15 20 minutes of the movie that's that's the end of his life so it is kind of a downbeat moment you know i put a note is it too dramatic is it too pessimistic but the fact is that you come away worrying more about blue's future than you do yeah, about yeah. his victim on the floor so you know where yeah, your identification sure. is don't guy, you? you know I'd, i really don't care about him yeah <laughs> being stabbed once with a screwdriver <laughs> yeah i'm sure he's gonna be fine on a technical level i really really like the fact that there's no kind of interim you cut straight to the gig so you're straight into the next point of action i think we get a couple of nice shots of blue traveling from the lockup to the gig and he has that kind of slightly spaced look on his face where also it's that kind of last night on earth <laughs> as he's on the tube and just kind of looking at people in their freedom and just thinking oh fuck you know i, th- I think it, it there's a little bit of that resonating the sound clash at the end of the movie it has one of my favorite musical moments of all time all right well they come they come from here and here over the decades and this is one that i was just i was watching it last year and i was like oh my god that's one of the most exciting things i've ever seen there's a bit in this gig where um one of the other um mcs or technicians on the sound system is playing a syndrome one of those early kind of tunable synthetic drums 
and he's it's really distorted uh, and he's kind of tuning that on the fly and playing it along so it yeah, sounds cool. amazing it's one of the best <laughs> things i've ever heard I, I read an interview with uh brinley ford and he was saying that you know he'd kind of petitioned to do the dub for this sequence and hadn't got it finished so when they shot this sequence they shot it mute and he was just like i'm gonna bob my head and wave my arms everybody follow me so he said the room was totally silent until he started doing his kind of acapella singing and that yeah and he said that he was like a conductor of a silent orchestra getting all those and crossed his fingers and when they laid the track in at the end it fitted perfectly you got some aggro going on in the crowd jar shaka's scene that he was quite unhappy about yeah. did you read that yeah, he couldn't he couldn't um divorce himself from the artifice of making a film he was like i'm not gonna lose i can't lose i can't lose a, a clash there's a quote um on the uncarved website there's a, a quote from an interview with josh shaka where he's saying he was i mean he agreed to appear in it but then he was very unhappy with the scene because he didn't think that that kind of aggro went on um and he kind of says some years after the fact oh yeah yeah i, I really disagreed with the director and i had to direct to myself in that scene oh, yeah. but again despite disagreeing with it he still comes off as quite aggressive and he's needling poor Beefy who then does the wrong thing again, pulls a machete. Well, Blue arrives, doesn't he? Blue arrives to, to join in. Kind of, I think Loverboy is given the mic to start, isn't he? Just as Blue arrives. And we get that nice kind of, you know, again, a little Scorsese moment following Blue as he enters the venue and people are there looking at him like, oh, he's here. And then he picks up the mic and just drops straight into that. We can't take no more of that like and just just does it as yeah. a kind of charm doesn't he it's amazing so hypnotic yeah. and it's one of, you can tell this is like one, this is a, one of the high points of his life this, this amazing exultant yeah, yeah. performance and everything's going right but of course you've got the police trying to get in not able to get in and then in a really nice touch uh, rather than give you this kind of climactic charge from the police, it, the film just cuts to black. Just yeah, as they it's a proper kind of seventies ending, isn't it? Yeah, you don't need any more than that. You've kind of it's built up to that point, and you, you yeah, the rest of it you can you can you can piece together yourself. Apparently, the, this section is based on Dennis Bovell, who did the score. His experience of being busted at a sound system. He spent six months on remand in prison because they said he was inciting a riot, but he was just emceeing and. When they, when they were looking for an ending, he was like, look, this happened to me. And there we have it. Um, so good. Yeah, one of the best British films of the late 20th century, which is still still fairly little known, despite a massive, you know, strong cult following for decades. So Franco Rosso passed away about five years ago, but I think he was at least around to see its kind of re-emergence as uh, an important piece of British cinema. It must be so frustrating to create something that powerful and to expect it to really change the world and then it gets suppressed. I mean, they gave it an X rating here. Yes, it's fucking crazy, you know, the, isn't it? I think the people that needed to see it the most, it was just like kept from them and you know that if anything highlights how afraid the establishment were of it as a, as a piece of work i mean that x certificate is outrageous i i hope that now it's on amazon and netflix at the same time it's yeah, gonna break I mean, through it's it's incredible it's such an important piece of cinema i mean i think the, the most frustrating thing is how relevant it still is today you know 40 years later it's so frustrating that so little has changed Thank you.